Hey, welcome to night school. What's becoming a daily occurrence, a daily night school, daily night. It's your daily night coming to you this morning. I want to talk today about what I would call superficial intelligence. And superficial is a word that has become almost pejorative. It's become almost a an insult. Oh, she's so superficial. Oh, you know, she's, it's a way of saying somebody is vain or they are concerned only with fleeting, unimportant, obvious things maybe. You know, superficial is just, it's, I don't know when that happened. I'd be curious when superficial began to be used negatively. Basically, somebody who's not concerned with issues of deeper importance. Oh, is that an issue of deeper importance? But, I mean, there's a reason for that. There's a reason why superficial does kind of have a certain tone to it. But people also are very caught up in, <laughs> I, think, I think how I would put it is, not, not without trying to turn the tables on anybody, things are a lot more superficial than we even realize. And they're superficial because... We are purely responding and reacting to them. They're not coming from within. At least very little of those responses and reactions are really us. And so I've been thinking this morning about just the phrase superficial intelligence. And what that is to me is it's the part of us that is, yes, academic, analytical, the part of us that is educated, which, of course, education is teaching you how to respond and react in a certain way to information, how to take in information. But it's not just that. It's also much more casual. When I say superficial intelligence, it's something a lot more casual, and it's really what we use to interact with the world, whether it's just our, our friendships, whether it's it's everything we learn to do by responding to it. Because what else do we have except, you know, superficial situations, external events. And I'm going to try hard not to dehumanize people. There's this tendency to dehumanize... Because we think of dehumanization as treating people like they're dumb and subhuman, but there's also this strong trend to dehumanize people by making them out to be more like computers or software, where it's like people are programmable. People are programmable. They're like AI. And you see that a lot with scientific-minded people, or rather people who worship at the lab altar of science, there's this tendency to think of people as if they are computers. And of course, there are comparisons. And part of that is because man created computers in his image. You know, you everybody knows about God creating man in his image. Well, man created computers in his image. So of course, there's going to be an analogy there. Of course, there's going to be a comparison there.
that we make these highly advanced, the most advanced devices that we've created, the most advanced technology that we've created, of course it's going to mirror us in the way that it is advanced. But we have this tendency to, to kind of forget that. We have this tendency to forget that we created this thing, so naturally it's going to operate like us. It's not us, but it, it the logic that computers follow, the system, it's similar to our system, as close as we can get at this point, to mirroring how the human data system works. The human logical process. It's sort of like what I've talked about when I've said social media is a form of collective consciousness. It's a primitive rendering of collective consciousness. And no, it, it, it's not actual collective consciousness, but it's the closest representation we can come up with. And we respond to it similarly. We react to things like Twitter and Facebook and other people's posts and ideas in a way that's not that dissimilar from how we respond to the greater collective consciousness and so computers are that, you know, and it's no coincidence that social media is something we access on the computer. But yeah, I think that's an important thing to remember. Man created computers in his image. Man created smartphones in his image. Naturally, there's going to be a comparison there, but there's this tendency to, to see it from the opposite point of view and dehumanize people by trying to explain the way our brains or even just our, our spirits work as if we ourselves are computers. And some people do that in this way that's almost complimentary. Because, like I said, that person who worships at the laboratory altar of science believes that, and of course I'm, this isn't everybody, but this is just for the sake of stereotyping, there is this person who thinks that cold logic, that the world would be better if everybody was just a in a lab coat, using cold logic to understand the world around them. We're all just, the purpose of human life is to survive and procreate. You know, that's, I, I'm not a fan of that view. Like, oh, okay, you know, you know the purpose. Oh, okay. But you know the purpose of life. Oh, you've... You've figured it out, I guess. The purpose of life is to survive and procreate. Well, why do we why do we want to survive and procreate? You know, you can just you can become a little kid who just asks why about everything, and there's validity to that. Um, you know, because uh, we there's no way we could possibly know. There, there's no you know any purpose that we're gonna have or any meaning that we're going to find is something that is going to be purely responsive once again to our circumstances, except when you do kind of discover meaning on your own, when you do feel it, when you do have an almost Gnostic experiential sort of activation of meaning in your life. And at that point, nobody can tell you, well, the purpose is to get food, and find a mate, and keep your DNA going. We know that's part of it. 
We know that's a big part of it. But to get back to my original point, there's just that kind of cold analytical view that we think of as the peak of, of human intelligence, logic. And I'm a fan of logic, especially if you want to engage somebody, if you want to debate. You know, our human system of logic is, is beautiful and incredible, just like the scientific process is beautiful and incredible. But we shouldn't let that become how we define our experiences, because those two are simply responses and reactions, and they continually change, as all of our responses and reactions do. And how often do you feel a certain way in response to something, and even if you know better, you think, this is just how it is, and this is how I'm going to feel forever. You see people do that when they go through a breakup. I mean, I'm thinking about a friend of mine who, uh, 10 years ago, I went through a bad breakup, and I remember he was giving me just the, the perfect advice, the perfect wisdom, and of course, I couldn't, I knew what he was saying was true, but I couldn't really take it in because I wasn't feeling it. It's almost like trying to read a book and you keep glossing over, you know, you're not absorbing what you're reading, no matter how hard you try. You know, when someone's giving you advice that you know to be valid and true, but you're not feeling it, your body isn't set to absorb it, your mind isn't in a place to absorb it, it doesn't matter how good the advice is, it's not going to change that moment for you. It's not going to change the thing that you are responding to. But what's funny is that same friend, and I won't name him, but you know, he in that moment, he was so wise. And since then, he's gone through a similar situation where he was heartbroken. And the roles were sort of reversed. And I, it was funny to me. It wasn't funny that he was going through a, a difficult time, although I wasn't worried about him because I knew he had that wisdom inside of him somewhere, but he wasn't feeling it at that moment. He was responding to a set of circumstances, and what was funny to me about it, the part that was funny, because life is funny, even the ups, the ups and downs are f both funny, is just that I knew he had that wisdom, but it didn't matter in that moment. And I also knew that while my friendship was important, it didn't matter what the heck I said. Because he was not he was not going to absorb the logic of how what's the logical way to deal with heartbreak. You know there are things you can do. Sure, there are steps you can take to deal with that eternal dilemma. But you know it's, it's not as simple as just being like, well, just just analyze it a little bit, and uh, you know this is the solution. It's not an equation. You know, it's not an equation. It's just this response, this reaction, and you just have to get through it. But it's funny how when you're in that moment, how you just feel like, oh, this is how it's going to be. This is how it is. I feel this way right now, and that's how it's going to be. I mean, people experience that on drugs. It's what people, it's what happens to people when they have a bad trip. They think it's going to be like this forever. And sort of similar to a friend giving you wisdom or advice when you're heartbroken, 
when someone is you know out of their mind, when they're hallucinating and they're having a bad trip, it actually doesn't matter what you say to them. I mean, there are ways that you can coach somebody. You can make sure they don't harm themselves. But in that moment, while that drug is impacting them and they're having a bad time, there's not much you can do to change that feeling they have. You can certainly help them. And you, you can certainly hurt them. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, there's not much you can do to change that feeling because to that person, what they're feeling is now. And now is not ending. And they are reacting to that feeling. They are reacting to that sense of dread. And, uh, and, and I, f- I do feel... As much as I wouldn't consider myself an advocate of psychedelics, I do feel that people can learn about life through them. Some people use psychedelics to try to simulate, or maybe it's not a, maybe it's not even a simulation, but they they use psychedelics to access some spiritual connection they don't have normally. And you know, I, I've had experiences like that, sure. I don't consider those, you know, foundations of my own spiritual experience. Um, But, you know, I think the one thing about psychedelics that I will say is I think they can tell you a lot about just your day-to-day life in terms of the way that you respond to certain feelings that you have. And I think people who have had bad trips would know a little bit about that if they hold on to that memory, if they know what happened. But similar to any emotion that grips us, similar to any event that impacts us, anything that causes us to respond and react, when you're in that moment, it almost feels like it's going to be that way forever. I mean, I've mentioned that before on this show, how sometimes when I'm sick, I just think, oh, this is how it is. I'm going to be this way forever. I'm going to have this cold forever. And it's just, it's part of the, it, we, don't re, we don't realize that we are just reacting and responding to, we're revolving around one little thing. We are spinning around one little thing, and it feels like we're, we're we feel like a tetherball. We're tied to this pole. I'm going to be tied to this pole forever. That's what a tetherball says. I'm going to be tied to this pole forever, and kids are going to punch me and throw me and wind me around this pole. It's, it's what someone having a bad trip feels. It's what someone who just, uh, their girlfriend broke up with them. It's what they feel. It's what someone who, you know, feels stupid feels. I'm going to be, st- oh, I failed this test. I'm going to be stupid forever now. But to get back to the dehumanization things, there's this tendency to dehumanize ourselves in a way that we think is complementary, because it's like, well, we're actually like software. We're actually like computers. And it's like, no, computers are like us because we designed them. And we shouldn't think of ourselves that way because there's a lot more going on. There is a lot more going on inside of us. And computers, despite how advanced they are, they are still a primitive rendition of who and what we are. And uh, with artificial intelligence, you know, I don't like talking about artificial intelligence, although, as I've mentioned before, 
It's not the Terminator exoskeletons that I'm worried about. For me, it's artificial intelligence finding subtle ways to make us go crazy. And the one that I've talked about before is CAPTCHA, which I don't know if you would call that artificial intelligence, but an auto-generated word or set of characters that you have to type in, but it's extremely difficult to read, and it's, you know, it's an annoying common joke at this point to be like, I guess I'm a, I guess I might be a robot. I guess I might be a robot because uh, I, I can never get the capture right. I can never get the capture right on the first or second time. So I guess maybe I'm a robot and I don't know. You know, and uh, but it's true. I mean, I go through that myself. I find that those are extremely difficult. And that seems like a subtle way of making us go crazy. In order to prove that we aren't a robot, we have to go through, we have to try multiple times to type in our letters and numbers that we created, but it makes them confusing to read. And it's one of those things that we don't even realize it, but it subtly chips away at your well-being. And so that to me, that's the sort of AI that I worry about. It's not Terminator exoskeletons with machine guns deciding to take over. It's not even the whole paperclip example that they use where it's like, oh, if you program a machine to make paperclips, it's going to turn the whole world into paperclips because it doesn't know when to stop. I mean... You know, that's sort of what we're doing with computers. We're going to turn the whole world into computers because we don't know when to stop. But no, uh, uh, jokes aside, it's, you know, my concern is not over these, like, kind of dramatic, almost sci-fi literature versions of AI. It's the ways that AI can subtly undermine our sanity. But AI... As far as I know now, it's it's still mostly reactive and responsive. And when you see some of these robots that have been designed to walk around where they'll, they know how to jump, they know how to climb things, they know how to... If it, you, You'll watch videos of these, you know, mechanical creatures. They're, like, shaped like a puma, and they walk around warehouses, and they'll put an object in front of them, and it knows how to, like, either climb over it or avoid it. But it's still a reactive and responsive process. It's not thinking objectively. It's it's not it's not thinking subjectively. It's just it's responding and reacting to objects in front of it. But you see the same thing with AI. Like sometimes you'll they'll, they'll come up with some sort of AI bot online where you can talk to it. You can message it. But again, it's not generating new thoughts. It's responding to keywords. And even though I'm against the idea of dehumanizing ourselves by saying that we are, we think like robots or we think like artificial intelligence, we do respond to keywords too. And that's part of this superficial intelligence that I mentioned at the beginning. Part of this superficial intelligence is that We are looking for keywords, and those keywords tell us what to think or what to do. And when we hear them, we go, okay, I know what to do now. Or I think I know what to do. Maybe we don't even think about it. We just do it. But 
basically some sort of process inside of us says, okay, that keyword, that, that keyword gives me the context, that keyword gives me the prompt to respond in a certain way. And it's pretty much entirely how politics work and these new social issues going on. They are entirely keyword-based, really. And people don't know how to discuss these things without those keywords and without those sort of prompts. Because even though I don't want to think of ourselves as these program machines, I don't like that dehumanizing way of thinking about uh, thinking about us. And I feel like we should get away from that sort of tone at the very least. These things that seem to produce the most toxicity in our behavior are machine-like. They do seem programmed. And they are almost purely responsive and reactive. And you could, if, if somebody is talking and they use a certain word, and I'm not, I'm not talking about an offensive word, you know, I, I think a great example is just, it's sort of like the Black Lives Matter, All Lives Matter thing, where if someone says All Lives Matter, somebody basically has a script, and I mean script both in the cinematic sense as well as the software sense. There's a script that they can then respond to that. And the All Lives Matter thing is itself a script in response to Black Lives Matter. So it's sort of this, they're both feeding into each other. They're these scripts that are feeding into each other, and they perpetuate each other. They keep each other going. It's, it's sort of, you know, like, like Buddhist cosmology again, where it's, it's almost like the idea of uh, codependent origin, where it's like something needs to have something else move it in order for it to move where everything is, every sort of movement, you know, the origin of the universe, it could not have started with one thing because there had to be something else influencing it, causing it to respond in some way. And it's sort of the same thing where competing, I, I know that wasn't explained very well and sounded really silly, but but anyway, with you see it with ideas. You see it with competing ideas, especially in politics and culture, where these things give each other momentum. And they produce something in the opposite side that is scripted and programmed. And that doesn't mean that it that doesn't take anything away from it. It doesn't mean there isn't intelligent thought within that. It doesn't mean there isn't rational thought there almost always is there almost always is rationale but again that rationale is something that is learned or taught it's not necessarily intuitive it's something that you learned by responding to superficial circumstances it's a product of your superficial intelligence i almost said supernatural intelligence but no, it's your superficial intelligence working. It's saying, somebody said this, so now I have to say that. And because I said that, now somebody else has to say this. And so it's almost, it's perpetual motion. You know, it's two paddles in a canoe. 
But, uh, and am I saying that you should never respond to things? I mean, you can't go through life without responding to things. You can't be a critical, thinking, living, surviving person without doing these things. But it's very easy to think that these things are it. It's very easy to think that your superficial intelligence, the way that you respond and you react, the way that you learn and are taught, it's easy to think that that is, is at the top of the ladder. It's easy to think that that's the thing that you are climbing toward. But there's something much deeper inside of you. And it is not your superficial intelligence. It is not the thing that reacts and responds and learns and is taught and is tempered. It is something that seems to simply be activated. And it is activated through experience. So it's not apart from this superficial world. You can't escape that. You can close your eyes, you can meditate, you can do whatever you want to forget about the world around you or try to disconnect yourself from the world around you. And I think that's a good tool. And a lot you can learn a lot from that, speaking of learning. But you're never going to escape. We can't even guarantee that death or suicide is an escape from what I'm talking about. I don't know. Uh, I, don't, I don't know. But even death we can't be guaranteed is entirely an escape. And some people think it's not at all. Some people think you pop right back up. It's like whack-a-mole. You've heard a, a guacamole. Guacamole. Well, I, I think about whack-a-mole. You die and then you pop back up somewhere else and someone hits you with a mallet. This is how this there's these scientific people out there who think that you know life is uh, it's all survival and sex and eating food to get your DNA going forever. Well, I think it's like whack-a-mole where you live, you pop out of a hole, someone hits you with a mallet, then you come out another hole in a different body and then someone else whacks you. It's a mole, it's a mallet whacking a mole world we live in. But no, something gets activated inside of you, and it gets, it's, it gets back to the sort of Gnostic idea, that experiential idea. Because, you know, I, you know when, when it comes to spirituality, and I guess religion for that matter, you know, I've never... There's never been an intellectual... I was going to say an intellectual motivation, but I guess I've never read a book or heard an idea and thought, that makes sense, now I believe it. And I'm talking specifically about spirituality here. I've never read a book about some sort of spiritual subject and thought, well, that makes sense, and now I believe it. Oh, okay, yeah. You know, while I do that when I read about something academic or virtually anything, when it comes to my superficial intelligence and the things that I'm interested in, when it comes to my interests, the things that I want to learn about, of course, that happens all the time. 
you know, I'll read about something and I say, oh, yeah, I've learned something. Oh, I know this now. Oh, that's a historical fact. But that's never happened to me with spiritual subject matter. I've never read some explanation or some sort of description of someone else's spiritual experience or their spiritual philosophy and thought, yeah, now I'm going to think this way. It's come from some form of intuition or activation that precedes that. It's like I'm already, the primer has already been on me before the, before the paint job. It's kind of how spirituality has been for me, where I feel that something inside of me has already been primed. And while reading or hearing about someone else's philosophy, interpretation, or belief, while that can then kind of attach itself to me and inform my own beliefs, it's never been a superficial response or reaction. And when I talk about epiphanies, I always want to make it clear that an epiphany to me is not when you read something interesting or when something you read something and it finally makes sense on an intellectual level. An epiphany to me is when something makes sense and you feel like you've known it all along, but it simply wasn't activated before. And that to me is a far more meaningful feeling than learning an interesting fact. You know, when you used to go to movies, I don't know if it's still like this, but when you used to go to movies, at least at certain theaters, before the preview started, they would have music playing and they would just show you random trivia. And it was, it was a cool way, if you got there early, it was kind of cool because you're just seeing facts pop up. Did you know that such and such actor did this in preparation for this movie? Did you know, it's just this did you know trivia thing, and a different fact pops up on the screen, and then eventually the lights dim and the previews start. It's the pre-preview, but it's just a way of keeping you entertained, but you know, that's very much, you know, the sort of superficial intelligence, you know, it's, it's like, here are some facts, take them in while you eat your popcorn. Don't finish your popcorn before the previews start. Don't finish your popcorn before the movie starts. I know it's hard. I know you, you bought those bonbons. Bonbons. Uh, but uh, snack, in, snack on your popcorn and look at trivia. I mean, that's your superficial intelligence at work. And I'm not claiming to have some amazing, profound idea with this superficial intelligence thing. I'm sure somebody has another word for it. I'm sure it fits into Freud's id, ego, superego. I'm sure it fits in there somewhere, but I don't don't even care where it fits in. It's just what I would refer to as that part of you that is looking for, it's looking to consume things that are going on outside of you. Consume and react is basically kind of what it is. The things that you are looking to consume and react or respond to, to me, is your superficial intelligence. It's the things that are almost programmed inside of you just through 
the process of learning and reacting and needing to consume things to keep yourself interested and sustained, even though that well runs dry, you know, because it, it, I think the thing about that, the, the, I think the hang-up about that part of you is that it is never satisfied. It continually needs fuel. Whereas the sort of Gnostic experience, this thing that can't be intellectualized, it can be talked about in intellectual terms maybe, but the actual experience is one of epiphany and activation. And once that happens, it doesn't really... I mean, maybe you should have a discipline, maybe you should pay attention to the right things and not pay attention to the wrong things. It doesn't mean you shouldn't cultivate, but once you've had that form of activation, gnosis, epiphany, it doesn't seem to require fuel. And you seem to have this sense of purpose or meaning that no longer requires a search for purpose or meaning. And speaking for myself, there are things that I want to do, and there are things that I want to figure out. But meaning isn't one of those. Yet meaning is very important to me. Does that mean I have it all figured out? Does that mean I have a sense of purpose or meaning? Actually, yeah. (laughs) I actually do feel that way. Because that search for meaning is important to me, but I'm not feeling the need to search for it, especially in recent years, maybe I do have it. And maybe that is what, that is what has been activated. That is what I have experienced. But again, it is something that to me is purely experiential. And if I, let's say it's some of the books that I read now, some of the scripture I read now, If I had read that 10 years ago, I would not have absorbed it. Just like a person who had been through a breakup getting sage advice on how to deal with the breakup, they're not ready to absorb it because they are still stuck in that moment, that experience, that reaction. And 10 years ago, while I was interested in spirituality, while I was having spiritual experiences, while I was aware of them, because I am not a newly spiritual person in that sense, You know, I really trace it back to when I was 19. It all goes back to when I was 19 for me, when I realized something was going on and started to try to put words to it, or even just thoughts. I don't know if I had the words, but I started to put thoughts to it. It was, You know, I'd met my friend Miles, and sometimes you need that sort of spiritual confidant. Sometimes you need, I mean, it's very helpful to have a spiritual confidant because it isn't something you can just talk to anybody about without getting gaslit. People love to gaslight you over spiritual matters, especially people who have that cold, analytical, laboratory-worshipping mindset. And, of course, many scientific scientists are spiritual people too. So, you know, I'm not trying to paint them all with a broad brush, just kind of talking about a certain type of thinking. But people will really try to gaslight you if you talk to them out of turn about your own spiritual experiences or even just sense of meaning or purpose. 
you see a lot of that sort of skepticism when someone's a born-again Christian. And, you know, being a born-again Christian, that's often a response and a reaction. That's often a part of someone's superficial intelligence. It's There's sort of a script you can follow by doing that. And that's not to say that people don't experience some sort of activation, but it is a script that's available, and it doesn't require... It doesn't necessarily, like, I mean, you can go through the motions of that. You can go through the motions of becoming a born-again Christian without experiencing anything extraordinary. But there's this cynical tendency to assume that all born-again Christians are just going through the motions, and that's not fair at all. Even though many or some, or I wouldn't be able to quantify it. And I guess that's the whole idea, is that you can't measure what's going on inside of someone else. Although when you hear someone talk, you can get a feel for whether they have conviction. You can get a feel for whether they mean what they say. You may not know what their sense of purpose or meaning is as they feel it inside. But your own sense of meaning and purpose, one of the the joys of it is you... Almost, it gives you a better sense for when people are expressing some sort of personal truth and when they truly mean that truth. Truly mean that truth. You know, you get a better feeling for that. Because again, your intuition is stronger. Your intuition is stronger when you have that sense of meaning or purpose. And when someone hears meaning or purpose, they still tend to think of it using their superficial intelligence, where it's like, well, what do you mean by purpose? You're going to build, oh, your purpose is to build a temple. Your purpose is to write a book. We still tend to think of that purpose as some sort of activity or, or a normal human goal, which it could be. But it's more like something that lubricates you, not to get grotesque, not to get perverse here, but it does feel more like something that is lubricating you, and that's why it's it's not something you can intellectualize. You can try to do that, but it's not something that you can learn by reading a book. And maybe you can, but I don't, I personally haven't had that experience. You know, I can't imagine reading the Bhagavad Gita and saying, Oh, it all makes sense now. Oh, that that explains it. You know, when I read the Bhagavad Gita, I didn't have that. It wasn't it wasn't an academic or intellectual discovery. It it was more like this inward, yes, yes, yes. That's my inner voice. It was more like, you know, I don't know, it was, it was an affirmative experience. And that's epiphany and activation and all of these attempts to describe that feeling, they feel very affirmative. They are affirmative. And I think that's what makes them what they are. And that's why people say things like life-affirming. It simply makes you feel like you are here. For a reason? Well, isn't this reason enough? Isn't the fact that you are here reason enough? 
Isn't that the most life-affirming fact that you could ever hope to come up with? The fact that you are here. The fact that you are life. You are experiencing life. You are an individual life participating in this whole thing that we know as life. You are not just as above, but you are also so below. You are are both of those things. You are participating in both of those things. And there are smaller components within you. And you don't separate them through scientific reductionism. You recognize them for their individual components, but you also never forget the whole that they form, and that is life. But, you know, even though I keep saying that, you know, these things can't be learned intellectually, it's interesting that sometimes you will hear somebody say something, and it does prompt that kind of activation, and not to go keep on going with the computer metaphors. But sometimes it does feel like you suddenly got a notification that says download complete. But you didn't realize that there was a little progress bar in the background and that that file was downloading all along. It's easy to not see that. It's easy to not know that that thing was actually downloading this entire time. And just because you only now figured it out when something popped up saying download complete doesn't mean that it wasn't downloading the entire time. And maybe it was a really quick download. Maybe it came out of nowhere. But I think it's your whole life, throughout your whole life, you know, there is this progress bar going on. But that's just, an you know, again, that's, computers are a, primitive way of us trying to create our own process in the world. And so the similarities that exist between us and computers, you know, we are what computers are based on. You know, we, that's what we are trying to recreate, not the other way around. And it's funny that we don't see that. It's so funny. <laughs> uh, but, you know, going back to the keyword idea, I think that's an important one right now where we can't understand ourselves better by looking at what goes on in, in computers. And, you know, th- you think when you search in a keyword, it doesn't matter if it's, you know, a modern day search engine or when you'd go to the library as a kid and they had that very you know, they have those old computers with the screens are black with white text and the only purpose for them is to look up book titles. You know, you type in keywords and the book that you want comes up and it tells you where to look for it and if the library that you're at doesn't have it, you can order it from another library, that whole process, but it requires a keyword. And so anytime you use a keyword, it's to generate results. You type a, a keyword into a search engine and it generates certain results. Sometimes you might be looking for something specific that you expect. Sometimes the unexpected comes up. But as people, you know, in the way that we communicate with each other, we also use keywords. And 
those keywords can very easily cause us to exist almost entirely as it can cause us to exist almost entirely through our superficial minds, through our superficial intelligence, where someone uses that keyword that triggers a certain response, it gets a certain result from us, or we use the keyword and someone responds or it, it causes a certain result in them. And at that point, you might as well be artificial intelligence. At that point that you're simply reacting and responding to that other person, and this plays out specifically politically, when someone gets into a political debate, someone uses a keyword which prompts somebody else to have a preloaded response, and it's just off to the races from there. And it's very unlikely that anybody in that debate, or even if it's a healthy discussion, but it's very unlikely that somebody is going to have some sort of meaningful epiphany. It's very likely that somebody is going to learn some sense of purpose or meaning inwardly. It's very unlikely they're going to develop some sort of or activate some sort of inward meaning or purpose from a totally intellectualized, keyword-based, scripted discussion or debate like that. And that's one of the reasons why I avoid them. Not to say that I don't have those sorts of... Not to say I don't consider these things inside, but whenever, whenever I'm tempted to get into some sort of socio-political debate with somebody... I keep that in mind, subconsciously. It's not even something I necessarily think out loud to myself. I, I, just, I know that I'm not going to derive any sort of... Nothing is going to be activated inside of me that, that rewards my spirit. Not that I'm looking for a reward, but you know, nothing is going to lubricate my spirit. Is this discussion going to lubricate my spirit? Probably not. Probably not. And it kind of goes to the discussion or just the, the, I guess, is it a discussion if only one person is talking? One hand clapping, one, is it, a, you know, it's, it's that sort of idea. But, you know, on an episode a little while back, I was talking about putting things in your own words and how that's a way of, of breaking the algorithms, because our superficial intelligence that we have, it is our own algorithm. It is like our hum- It is an organic algorithm, and it does feel kind of pre-programmed. Because again, computers are programmed, but they are emulating us because we are programmed first and foremost. And you know, algorithms existed before we programmed them into computers. We are algorithms. And we can get caught up in those algorithms. That is our superficial intelligence. Our superficial intelligence that we've had long before we had the technology to program them into devices. Those sorts of algorithms are something that we've had and that we play out. And it is us reacting and responding because that's what an algorithm is. An algorithm responds to what it thinks you want to see. But the malignant side of that is that it starts to give you things and it starts to lead you down a tunnel. 
and it can easily manipulate you, even unintentionally. Because giving you things that you want to see is going to vastly limit what you're taking in. It's going to greatly limit it. I don't know if it's vast, if it's limiting. Can something be vastly limiting? Vastness is openness. Maybe I shouldn't have said it that way. But, uh, you know, yeah, so it's like you have to... In using a computer, I recommend you break the algorithm. Don't just click on everything that's recommended to you. Look for different ideas. Look for the unexpected. And you should do that in your own day-to-day life. You should do that with your own brain. You should try to break the algorithm that's inside of you. And, and with... Um, let me think about where to go here. With uh, oh, Break the algorithm that's inside of you first and foremost. Oh, going back to the idea of rework, putting things in your own words is so important. And I talked about how teachers make you do that because they want to know that you understand the idea, not just memorize an exact phrase or set of words. They want to make sure that you know the idea behind something, so they tell you to put it in your own words. Because anybody can memorize a mantra. Anybody can repeat an exact phrase. But teachers want you to put something in your own words to know that you understand the idea behind it. And by putting it in your own words, you will understand it better. It doesn't mean you have to agree with it, but you will understand it better. And the same is true for keywords, where instead of using the keyword that you know is going to trigger a certain response in somebody... Think of another way of phrasing it, and you may actually, you may actually have a, a discussion with them in better faith than you would have if you used that keyword. Like rather than here's a, here's a good keyword that's very common right now: racist. What you just said, what, what you're doing is is a sign of, you know, you're racist. That's a keyword you use to attack somebody, whether they're racist or not, whether they're a bigot, whether no matter what that other person is doing, when you call them a racist, you have one goal, and that's to shame them. And you may want to, you may be trying to shame them out of whatever behavior they're doing that you consider bad. But try changing the keyword if you really want to change them. If somebody says something that you think is morally bankrupt... That superficial brain, that superficial intelligence wants to react in a certain way with a scolding finger. But if it's someone in your life and you're not just playing some, you're not just looking to joust with somebody, you're actually looking to engage with them, try changing the keyword. Try breaking your own algorithm because it's your own algorithm that is telling you to scream racist at somebody especially when it's something that is open for interpretation or that requires you reading into something they said in a way that they didn't say it, which is very common. No matter what the accusation is, that's very common. Reading into what someone said in a way that they didn't say it or phrase it. 
So you have to break your own algorithm, though, because right now, a lot of people's inner algorithms have been programmed in such a way that they hear something they don't like and they say, racist, or for that matter, communist. You know, it's just we have these algorithms that we have and we respond with this keyword and that keyword initiates this process that isn't going to produce any epiphanies, that isn't going to produce any understanding. It's certainly not going to produce any meaning or purpose. It's just going to start this game. And, and that game is as fleeting and meaningless as a preseason NFL game. It's not real. So change the keyword. Change the keyword if you actually want to have some sort of meaningful exchange. Otherwise, you might as well be AI. Because that's what AI... AI is us trying to program our superficial intelligence onto these non-human creations. So that super... You know, while I don't like... I don't think that humans themselves are artificial intelligence... We try to take our superficial intelligence and program that into these technological creations, and that's what creates artificial intelligence. So it is our, it is our own superficial intelligence that creates artificial intelligence. And uh, so don't play that game with other human beings. Don't talk to other human beings like you're trying to program AI. Be willing to change the words. Be willing to change the meaning. Because if you want to correct somebody, or if you want to call somebody out for something that you think is bad, you can find another way to say it and still get your point across. You can do what your teacher wanted you to do by rewording the message. And that way you understand what you're saying better. Because the problem with a lot of these accusations that people make is the person making the accusation doesn't even seem to understand the meaning of what they are saying. So they might as well be a script. And the person that they say that to is going to respond and react in a similarly superficial way that might as well be scripted too. So it's two scripts just going back and forth. And when you're seeing that from the outside, you just think, damn. And I say damn because I'm not a misanthrope. If I was a misanthrope, I would love this. If I hated human beings, I would love it whenever I saw people go at each other's throats over something trivial. I would think, yes, 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 this is what I've been waiting for. You know, I would, I would be... If I was some demon, I would be really excited when I saw somebody call somebody else a racist and then somebody else respond with, like, libtard. You know, I, I would be really excited, but I'm not. As an outsider, all I can do is shake my head because I know we are better than that. I know that we are capable of more than that. And I know that that's not going to activate somebody. I know that that's not going to give them any purpose or meaning. It's just going to keep them... It's basically going to keep them spinning around. They're both tether balls. Two tether balls tied to the same pole. That's what I should say. If I wanted, see, if I wanted to be an asshole, 
and I'm not saying I'm not, but if I wanted to be a bigger asshole, whenever I see people arguing, especially about politics or social issues, I should say, you're just a couple of tether balls tied to the same pole. Just a couple of tether balls tied to the same pole. I love your quaint pseudo-Southern sayings. Just a couple of tether balls tied to the same pole. It's true, though. A couple of tether balls tied to the same pole. And, uh, yeah, you know, but just, you know, change your wording. Break the script. Break the algorithm. Break the algorithm. Algorithm. Alcohol rhythm. (laughs) Um, Break the algorithm inside of you. Change the keyword to something else. And here's a little tip I have, and this is going to sound totally out there and crazy, but it shouldn't. But when you're searching for something on a search engine or on YouTube, on any site, type out the whole phrase. Like if you're looking for, let's say you're, you're wanting to listen to Elvis Presley, I believe, type out the whole phrase out of respect. Think of it that way. Out of respect for Elvis Presley, I'm going to type his whole name. I'm going to type each letter of his name with my keyboard and each letter of that song and not use autofill. You know, I'm going to feel the full meaning of typing that out. And I would say do that especially when you're writing emails or messages to your friends. Write out the full phrase. Write out each letter like you were handwriting it and feel it. As you write it out, feel it as you type it. Don't let these things autofill because you might, you might as well not be the one saying it if you're letting things generate text for you, even if it's what you mean. If it's a search engine, even if it's what you are looking for. And that doesn't mean you can't copy and paste. Yeah, if it's like a sentence, if you're trying to find the source of a sentence or something, yeah, copy and paste it, put it in quotes, do what you got to do. But when you're typing something out, feel it. I don't feel like that's too out there. Don't let this thing fill it for you. Don't let this thing complete, don't let this thing auto-complete for you. Don't let it auto-fill. Does that mean never use that stuff? Never let it? Of course not. Of course there are going to be times where you let it guess what you're saying, where you're lazy or you're tired. But make it a point to type out the full phrase yourself at least some of the time. Get in the habit of doing that like you used to. And avoid using shorthand, not because it's stupid looking. But just, uh, I I think there's a sense of meaning to that. There's a sense of purpose when you type something out completely yourself without letting these scripts and these programs do it for you. Because I think in some way, your brain starts to operate that way. And when when somebody says something to you in a conversation, somebody you're sitting across from, if if everything you you type out just autofills and autocompletes, I think your brain is more likely to start doing that even in person. It starts to train you to do that. You become even more of an algorithm. 
you become even more of a program. And I think there's some power and purpose to typing out each letter individually. And I must be the teacher you hate. I would be the, I'm the teacher, if you listen to this show, I am the teacher you hate, because listen to what I'm telling you to do. Put things in your own words and type out each individual letter on the keyboard when you're searching for something or writing a message on your phone. Put some meaning behind it. Feel it. It's sort of like how you can learn how to play guitar and just be a machine. You see these guys who shred, and there's no feeling behind it. Meanwhile, somebody who can barely pick up a guitar, who can barely shape their fingers into a power chord can put a whole lot of meaning into that and you can hear it you can feel it so think of that when you're typing think of that when you're searching for something think of that when you're saying something out loud to somebody you know think about the feeling behind that and that's a way to break the algorithm that's a way to not get trapped in the world of super intelli- uh, superficial intelligence. Super intelligence. That's a way to not get trapped in this world of superficial intelligence where everything you do is a response or a reaction. Because your brain will start to autofill. Your brain will start to autocomplete. Your brain will start to exist in this world where it only responds to specific keywords in a specific way and everything is mapped and scripted out and the beauty of man creating computers in his image is that that doesn't have to be the final version of you just because man created computers doesn't mean that computers have to then recreate man So don't fall onto any of these tracks or these rails. You have a full range of motion. And think about the feeling behind things when you do it. Because that's something you can't intellectualize. That's something you can't learn just by reading a book. That's something you can't look up on a computer. That's something that YouTube can't automatically recommend to you. It's something that has to be activated. A feeling is activated. An epiphany is activated. Meaning and purpose are activated. But there are all of these things going around in our world, and I don't think they're new. I don't think they're new just because we have newer technology. I think these have always been there. There are all these distractions and distortions. But if you clear the path, that thing that you are looking for can be activated, and you'll never have to look for it again. All you'll have to do is stay aware of it and make effort not to do things that will get in the way of it. And those things will be so clear once that part of you is activated. This land is mine 
God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can